Welcome to Building the Base, a unique discussion focused on shaping our future national security industrial base during this pivotal time in our nation's history. For over 40 years, the nonprofit organization Business Executives for National Security, or BENS for short, has brought senior executives and best business practices from across our country together to address our nation's most pressing security challenges. The BENS mission is more important now than ever before. BENS is embarking on a historic project, gathering the best ideas and minds together to define the future industrial base that the United States will need to remain secure and prosperous for our future. And now you have the chance to be a part of it. It's a daunting task, a task the United States has not had to do at this scale since World War II. But it's also a historic opportunity, an opportunity to leverage new technologies, new business models, new ideas, and new voices to improve our country for the decades to come. Hear from top entrepreneurs and leaders from high tech, financial, industrial, and public sectors as they share their ideas and perspectives about how we can all work better together to ensure our national security and prosperity. We are excited to have you here with us. Here to begin today's episode, your hosts, longtime Benz member and leader of the Benz Technology and Innovation Council, Lauren Vadula, and former chief weapons buyer and innovator for special operators, sailors, and Marines, and now Benz distinguished fellow, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base podcast. I'm Lauren Badula, and I'm here with my co-host, Hondo Gertz. We're excited to be recording our fourth episode and um, have an, an extremely interesting guest here today with us, Steve Blank, who is a Vietnam veteran, a serial entrepreneur, an educator, an author, and across the board, extremely passionate and influential in the national security space. So, Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me. And at least one out of the three things you said are probably true. <laughs> He's actually also a pretty good dude, hopefully, uh, and and not afraid to say uh, say what he what he needs to say and and pro- provoke some good thoughts here. And so, Steve and I have spent a lot of time over the years uh, thinking about these hard problems and trying to make some progress. Uh, at getting the uh, organization to move at speed. And so it's awesome to have you here with us today. And uh, and as usual, I would expect nothing other than uh, your good frank thoughts and interesting perspectives as we take on these uh, challenging things facing our country. Yeah. So, Steve, let's start with your story. You know, everyone has an interesting story of what got them to this point uh, where they are today. And and yours is really particularly interesting. So could you give our our listeners a sense of your journey and what brought you here today? Yeah. You know, I'll I'll try to make it as short as I can. Um, You know, my parents were immigrants to the United States. They uh, um, both kind of escaped the Holocaust and and World War Two came over uh, only survivors of their family. Um, and uh, I grew up in New York City, uh, went to school for a while in Michigan, but then um, dropped out, joined the Air Force when I was 18, um, spent a year and a half in Southeast Asia and uh, worked on electronic warfare uh, uh, and electronic intelligence planes uh, as a technician, not a not a pilot, an enlisted guy. Uh, worked on wild weasels and F-4s and A-7s and then Got stationed on a B-52 base um, um, and worked on that. And then after my four, got out and eventually found my way to Silicon Valley. And there I did eight startups in 21 years. But more interesting, which I didn't understand until decades later, was my first startup was a halfway house between my military career and entrepreneurship career because the startup was run by a PhD mathematician named Bill Perry. 
And uh, Bill, at the time, um, had started the first company to use computers in um, national reconnaissance and signals intelligence. That uh, was a company called ESL, um, eventually acquired by TRW. And then Bill went off in the 80s to um, head R&E and uh, um, you know, the father of uh, the second offset strategy with uh, stealth semiconductors and software for ISR and and other things. Um, and, and so I got involved in my first startup, actually, in national means of technical verification. When I thought I got out of the business, now I was now I actually had tickets and was really in the business. Uh, but what was really interesting for me is here I was working on systems that were national efforts that not only involved this company, but you know, things in space and under the sea and in other places. And I realized that uh, while incredibly black programs are, as some of your listeners know, incredibly technically enticing and you, you know, you get sucked in and it's the most exciting thing you could do. But I was in a part of the world where like I had roommates who were excited that they could at the time make a speaker go beep and we're going to make a company out of it. (laughs) And here I am going, no, you don't understand what I'm working on. It's like, but but they were going to start a company. And I realized, and back then I didn't have a college degree that, you know, maybe at the pinnacle of my career, I might be a junior program manager on one of these things and let alone being able to run something. And, and so the, the, the idea of, uh, of being able to start something from a napkin sketch, at least for that part of my career was more of a pull than national security or the technical sophistication of the things we were working on in the midst of the Cold War when we were throwing infinite capital at, at some of these sophisticated problems. And so I did uh, two semiconductor startups, supercomputers, enterprise software, even video games, and then retired after my eighth startup when I got lucky enough to, you know, retire and see my kids grow up when I was 45. And then I've spent the last couple of decades thinking about the nature of innovation and entrepreneurship and actually had time to reflect about my journey and others in in startups and then later large companies and then later in government agencies and co-created something called the Lean Startup Method, which is the way that we now recognize that new ventures are very different than existing organizations or existing companies or existing processes inside of government agencies that we need different tools, different techniques, different, whatever. And and just, you know, to point to Hondo, it, it wasn't that smart people weren't already doing this. The thing we did was gave it a language and a methodology and then you could draw it as a picture rather than, Oh gee, it's a set of practices. These extraordinary people do but wasn't repeatable. And then we basically made these innovation processes repeatable. And so uh, I co-created that. And then I started turning it into classes. Uh, uh, first class ended up being adopted by the National Science Foundation. It's now called the I-Corps, Innovation Corps. It's how the U.S. government commercializes all science. Uh, it gets a SBIR grant uh, in the U.S. Then the NIH adopted it. Then uh, RPE adopted it. And then um, I taught a version inside the NSA, which became uh, I-Corps inside the NSA, which put more people through that program than the NSF. And then uh, Pete Newell and Joe Felter and I uh, stood up something called Hacking for Defense, uh, which is basically that same lean methodology, but this time taking problem sets from the DOD and the uh, IC. And then um, at the end of 2021, Joe Felter, who's the uh, ex-DASD for Southeast Asia, and Ross Shaw, who was... uh, the first head of DIUX, and I stood up a center at Stanford called the Gordian Knott Center for National Security Innovation with the observation that said, look, for the first time ever, and we'll, we'll get into this hopefully in part of the talk, the DOD 
now has to rely on technologies it no longer owns. Um, Commercial technologies, AI, machine learning, commercial access to space, quantum. I mean, we can make the whole list. The only thing the DOD still owns is maybe nukes, directed energy, and hypersonics. Um, And hopefully, at least one of them will still stay with the DOD. Um, And and yet, they didn't have an ecosystem that knows how to actually deal with those things second is we happen at stanford to be sitting at the middle middle of one of those ecosystems that developed that but but equally interesting we have faculty in both the the hoover institute with condoleezza rice and the freeman spogley institute headed up by mike mcfall who have great researchers who know what to think about this stuff and world-class students in both engineering and policy but but if we just did that, we would have ended up with a great uh, another think tank that did white papers. But what we know how to do in Silicon Valley is deliver minimum viable products at speed and scale. And so all our student classes are oriented to, no, 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 <laughs> we know you could come up with a great paper. You need to deliver something at the end of this quarter or else you fail the class. And by deliver, I mean turn the paper into either software, a demo of hardware or a narco sub. I don't care. But you're going to put something in the hands of a warfighter as a set of iterative designs. That's a pretty radical different idea for a think tank. And not everything turns out to be uh, useful, but I guarantee you they're all interesting. So that's kind of what I'm doing at the... At the current yeah, just, time, and, just, um, just, just a few small things, you know, over, over. No, no, no. It's, <laughs> no, but Hondo, if you think about it, you guys have been doing it as a profession, and and you know, here I am at the end of my career, going back to some of the things I started with early in my career. You know, it's the same DOD, but bigger, and and you know, the the systems are more complicated, and and uh, but the but what's really interesting is, and you've lived this, and you were part of the change. And, and hopefully continue the change is that we've yet to wake up that the fact that the world is no longer ours um, and that the processes we built for that world are no longer relevant. And that's the disconnect that I'm trying to get into the fight here that said, no, 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 you're not all idiots, but the world you, you built this for as much as you want to wish isn't isn't here anymore and we need to do different things um, yeah, so that's my background that's the long answer to a short question of you know how i got here that's awesome steve you know one of the things i spent a lot of time with is uh you know, what i call framing assumptions and most of the time i screwed up big where when there was a framing assumption that changed and i didn't catch it i.e like we own technology or our industrial base we had 70 years ago is still the one that, you know, plus 4% is what we need now. So, you know, DOD is a big beast, biggest uh, employer in the world, you know, giant scale. How would you suggest we start thinking or can you think of a big bureaucracy in a lean startup model? How would you apply that you know, very effective model to, you know, a large collection of Small problems, big problems, and medium problems. What's what you know? If you're out there in the audience and you're somewhere in the big machine, you know what, what's the first thing you? What's the minimal viable product to apply that model to a big bureaucracy? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say something so stupidly obvious, but but it will create a lot of embarrassment to your listeners. One of the core tenets of Lean, one of the things I invented, is this customer discovery methodology, and and its fundamental tenet is pretty simple. It says there are no facts inside the building, so get the hell outside. And 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 think about what that means. If you're a requirements writer, 
and, and you're writing a requirement for X and you haven't been living out in the field or on the deck of a carrier or in a boomer or something or whatever it is or operated that weapon, get the hell outside and do that because, and by the way, you, you know, make sure, and when I say get outside the building, all you have on day one, here's the color of that, when you're thinking about what problem you're solving, is really an uns untested set of hypotheses. And I use the word hypotheses at Stanford because those students are paying 50 grand a year, but outside in the DOD, they're actually effing guesses, right? So, so most, of, most of the problems you think you're solving, whether they're, you know, here's the adversary, here's the weapon system, or here's the tool, they're built on a set of guesses. So why don't you get outside and validate those guesses? And those guesses could be everything from the features we're delivering, or more importantly, the time frame that this thing is needed, because you could get it right, but not at the right time. It doesn't matter that you deliver something 15 years late. The, the, the problem set has changed. Uh, so number one, it's not only about the user needs. It's also trying to understand, in our case, we never, for the last 25 years, we never had to worry about a set of pacing adversaries. You know, we maybe had to worry about Al Qaeda and IEDs and, you know, Pete Newell and, and, uh, uh, and his predecessors at the ref, you know, were there, but never as a national priority. Well, the other part of getting out of the building, and, and I've been kind of harping on this, is I want all the acquisition people from the, from the secretary on down to go up to whiteboard and draw me. How the heck can North Korea generate two generations of ICBMs, a generation of submarine launch ballistic missiles, three medium range ballistic missiles and a set of you know, rocket artillery with a gross national product of 30 billion a year when our new Miniman replacement system is going to cost $100 billion and not even be fielded to 2029. And if it's today, that probably means 2035. So. So something is broken here. So number one is you don't even have to draw China's system. Draw me how the heck a third rate or fourth rate country is able to actually generate this stuff from research to development to, de to acquisition to deployment and, and compare. And literally, as you do that, I want all of you to stand up in front of a you're in front of Congress. Draw that diagram for me and now draw ours underneath. And tell me, not that we re need to reform PBE, but tell me what's different here. So number one, it's get out of the building, right? And by the way, Heidi Shu, I want you to do the same thing. Go up to the whiteboard and draw me how does Silicon Valley actually deploy things in 18 months, not just social media, but we actually have built something called SpaceX and other things that actually have real hardware, or how do we build wafer fab equipment manufacturing machines that make semiconductor and these things are the size of rooms. How do we do that within 18 month cycles? And tell me how venture capital and private equity make money. And don't tell me about 6162, money. Tell me how these other folks do it and then draw your process and then tell me what's broken here. Does that make sense at all? I mean, yeah, I think, you know, I've, I've spoken often, Steve, uh, even in previous podcasts, but, you know, two great traits, well, three great traits, right? Curiosity, humility, and boldness. And, you know, before you can be bold, you actually need to be curious to figure out what's actually going on and be humble enough to learn before you, before you supersede with your ideas. So I think, I think those are all great ideas. Uh, you know, 
a lot of folks should think SOCOM's speed is purely because of less regulation or all that kind of thing. Most of it's because of relationships and you do things in parallel. You discover and field almost simultaneously. You don't, you don't go through large transactional processes um, where, where you get disconnected between the buyer and the end user. What I think is going on, though, right now uh, is, is that these organizations in the DOD are starting to hear they need to do something different. And to be honest, they're throwing stuff at the wall. What I just suggested really is no, 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 no dancing. Go up to the whiteboard and I will embarrass you until you're able to do that. And you're gonna, and when I force you to do that, you will force your staff to do that. And once you force your staff to do that, you're going to realize that we have built a system and we have people that actually have no knowledge of how the system we need to emulate actually works. And senior leadership is going to look around and say, well, wait a minute, we've just appointed the same people Woody would have appointed 10 years ago. Well, that world no longer exists. I mean, my line is the DOD has, and I really mean this, world-class people and world-class organization. Unfortunately, it's for a world that no longer exists. Yet we don't have the people from the world that does exist in places of authority. Um, and if we did, we would kind of understand, oh, we not only need to think differently, we need to operate at different speed, different culture, you know, different rules. And we will ask Congress for the authorities we need, not try to shoehorn stuff into the ones we have. This is not going to happen with kind of like a PBE committee saying maybe we'll machine it around the edges. This is going to happen when, you know, reform, you know, this reform happens for the DOD three different ways. It either happens internally, rarely, but happens. It happens through presidential directives when um, Roosevelt stood up the, the precursor of the Joint Chiefs in, in 44 or, or Eisenhower reorganized in 58. Or more importantly, when Congress reorganizes the DOD National Security Act of 47, or more importantly, relevant for us, the Goldwaters-Nichols Act, and what was it, 85? It, it, it might be that this is serious enough and, and crosses so many lines, right? Because it's a zero-sum game with the existing uh, uh, primes. There is no way some prime is going to tell their, their shareholders, hey, you know what? We're really not going to get 100% of what we've been getting before. Why don't we go quietly in the night? There's no effing way they're going to do that. The, the primes are probably more interested than China in making sure we don't do these reforms. And, and I say this not just to be clear. It's not that we don't need primes. Of course we do. They know how to do things that no startup or scale up will learn in the next couple of decades. But at the same time, startups could do things that primes can't do simply because they're paying baseball salaries, uh, star salaries to people with AI degrees and machine learning degrees and whatever. And, and it's not like, gee, the people you pay the most money to are always the smartest, but boy, I'd probably been on the, you know, on the team with, that has the higher payroll and, and, and yet they win all the contracts. So, so there is kind of a reconfiguration that needs to go on here which never needed to happen when we were competing with either the Soviet Union, who had their version of our bureaucratic mess, or non-nation states. But that's not who's pacing us anymore. The technologies we need are no longer in the DOD's purview, um, one. And two is our adversaries, not just China, others, are showing us that the system we have in place 
just fundamentally is, is broken from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. So, Steve, I think you've done a great job defining what we really see as the national security threat landscape of today. And I, I think that there is a sense of urgency now and understanding that this is a problem, right? We can't just depend on the primes. There needs to be collaboration or really a shift in the industrial base to respond or maintain our position in the world. And there's also a sense from some that this is new um, collaboration between DOD and Silicon Valley, but your history um, really suggests otherwise, right? And experience. Um, so wanted to see if you can comment about that shift and what you saw early in your career and what you're seeing today. And, and is the pendulum shif- shifting back towards that historical collaboration? Sure. And, and that's a great question because I, I knew none of this history. I mean, obviously I, had a career in EW and ELINT and, and uh, you know, uh, national means of technical verification, but I didn't understand its history, and nor did I understand the, the history of commercial technology universities in the DOD. And, and here's, the, here's the short version, and if anybody's interested in the longer version, on my blog is a, a tab called The Secret History of Silicon Valley. And it, basically the shorthand is Silicon Valley was started by the DOD and the intelligence community. And what happened is in World War II, for the first time, um, the uh, U.S. government decided um, by the work of one individual, Vannevar Bush, who went to Roosevelt and said, look, this war is going to be won by technology, not just traditional weapons. And, of course, the service chief said, well, that might be true, but we have these great weapons labs and we'll, we'll take it from here. And he said, no, I've had experience in World War One trying to give you guys advanced technology. He was doing work for the Navy, and that didn't work. Um, and he said, no, we should have civilians be, be building advanced weapon systems. You can imagine what the service chief said, said to that. And in fact, Roosevelt agreed. And so we basically, short version, stood up something called the OSR&D, Office of Science and Research and Development, and basically funded it with uh, $450 million, equivalent of about five to ten billion dollars today and stood up 19 divisions that gave us radar uh, electronic warfare um, basically the precursor of the nih rocketry out of jpl and started a, a small physics uh, project which actually spun out uh, because it became so large uh, that had its result over hiroshima, hiroshima and nagasaki became the manhattan project but these 19 groups were set up in universities run by civilians including if you remember the manhattan project working on military programs and they developed not just prototypes but basically ended up they were the ones who picked the vendors to make these systems at scale turns out the a stanford professor fred terman was responsible for building electronic warfare electronic intelligence at Harvard, um, in, in a cover organization called the Harvard Radio Research Lab, that basically put 24,000 jammers on every bomber over Europe, you know, within the span of nine months, copied a lot of what the British did in their uh, TRE organization. But this, this was multiplied, you know, 19 separate groups. What happened when the war ended and the Cold War kicked up over uh, Korea is that all this um, uh, all the civilian military collaboration scaled up once again. And during the Cold War in the 50s and 60s, every U.S. research university, every one of them, had a major weapon systems program inside the civilian research universities, duplicating what we did in World War II. So that military-civil co- collaboration, I, I'm familiar with the Stanford 
one, but it was going on at Stanford and MIT at University of Michigan, University of Wisconsin, Georgia Tech. I mean, you go through the list of the best research universities, and they were all specializing in one particular area. Stanford's happened to be electronic warfare and electronic intelligence, microwaves and electronics. And that one professor at Stanford happened to do something different than any other professor who was working on military work. And that is he turned Stanford into an outward facing university. He told those professors working on and those grad students working on military equipment something heretic. He said, why don't you take what you're doing in our lab and start companies? In the 50s, that was insane. No, no professor told you to do that. They tell you get your Ph.D. or go to work for large, not start your own. And so Fred Terman basically, and there was no venture capital. So he said, I did, I'll introduce you to some of the prime contractors to use and to everybody else who was thinking about how to put traveling wave tubes and radar inside of fighter planes for the first time, how to put jammers on, you know, bombers and whatever, and basically started that innovation culture in Silicon Valley. That ended in 1968 and 69 with the Vietnam War. Uh, there were riots at MIT and Wisconsin and certainly at Stanford that threw classified research off of university campuses and broke that uh, broke that bond between the DOD and the uh, academia and uh, the commercial uh, world still continued, but but that moved more into the black world as the commercial uh, innovation activities started to dominate. <laughs> that intersection crossed again post 9-11 when people understood that there was value in working with the military and we were attacked and let's collaborate. And then that was broken again when Snowden revelations came out and the DOD probably, I couldn't have devised a worse script if China had given it to us, basically put their head in the sand and let other people capture that narrative rather than saying we were trying to avoid another 9-11 or saying we can't confirm or deny, but wouldn't you like to work for an organization that could do this stuff? <laughs> we, we ran the other way. In the last 10 years, though, or nine years, it's um, it's slowly come back. And that certainly in the universities I talk to, students are understanding what's happened at Tibet and to the Uyghurs and to Hong Kong and now to the Ukraine. And so there's huge interest in a way I haven't seen since 9-11 in students understanding that national security is the reason we get to sleep peacefully in our beds um, and that other people... Uh, um, you know, other people serve and die for the rest of us. That's starting to percolate and that there is a difference between a democracy and a dystopian nightmare that that could happen. Uh, again, being practiced on the Uyghurs, if, you know, if you want to see what social media can do on the on the dark side, you know, there's there's active programs of that going on. So that's the long story of of the university uh, collaboration. Yeah, I, I, I want to applaud you for bringing that history back because I think, you know, everybody kind of got a, uh, you know, a history file that starts at some time. They sometimes don't realize the history that came before them. Um, and you're, you know, I would say you're hacking for defense program, which you guys are doing at Gordian Knot. And, and you just being out there has really started to forge back that, you know, you can help your country and it's OK and it's kind of cool and there's hard problems. And, you know, one thing the DOD has plenty of is really hard, complex problems. Um, how do you how should the department? I mean, we kind of have this. Um, fear of a revolving door. And I actually like a revolving door because you start, you can't get respect if there's not knowledge and folks don't understand both sides of the equation. Um, you know, we've done it, I would say, you know, onesie twosies. 
and maybe your I-Corps is a good start. What's How do we scale this, breaking down these kind of perceived barriers and really leveraging the full talent base that's available to the country uh, and, and, and making these problems that DOD has more uh, transparent for folks to, you know, wade into and bring their talents to bear? Well, you know, Hondo, those are great questions, and we could spend just the hour just on that. But let me start with the last one. You know, the DOD has world-class problems, um, and it's very funny. You know, if you're in a building with no windows and you see some of those problems that are classified and then you read them in the Washington Post, you kind of go. <laughs> but, but I understand, okay, we do a very bad job of providing a central location of scrub problems uh, or proxy problems that we could allocate to universities. So guess what? We had to create our own. Pete Newell at BMMT stood up the Common Mission Project to actually work with the DOD and IC, get the problems in, and then allocate them out, hacking for defenses in 60-plus universities. And so they collate along with the National Security Innovation Network. You would think that DOD would by now say, hey, maybe we ought to actually do this at scale. So that's number one, is that, and of course, we're so, you know, we're so security minded, we managed to tie ourselves to knots and we won't, we'll, that's another, but that's maybe a subset, but it's probably worth going there, is obviously to get a security clearance and at least a TSSCI, we, we know what a nightmare that is to get people cleared in any reasonable amount of time. Now, the irony is if somebody wants to accelerate a clearance, we know it could get done in 90 days, right? We know that could happen. But in fact, no, most stuff takes, you know, a, a year or more. Or, I mean, it's just insane. So we need to figure out what type of risks are we willing to take to accelerate getting a workforce engaged? The third part is, and, and this one, you know, there have been lots of papers and lots of great stuff on it. Our personnel system just needs to catch up to the fact that there are domain X, and and this goes back to, you know, Washington crossing the Delaware with, you know, with cannons rather than guys who know how to row. I mean, we've got the wrong people assigned to the boat. Um, you know, we, we still we're doing that now 300 years later. We still haven't figured out how to match talent with interest with whatever to not only get the right people on task, but to retain the right people. It's a big idea, right? I mean, you saw this in, in services. You know, it's why I left. It's like, no, I don't want to do this. I'm really interested in this. I could have probably spent my 20 in if somebody would have said, well, you're really good at that. Why don't we like have you work on this some more? That wasn't in the, as they said, not in the services needs. Well, okay. So I was no longer in the service, you know, but thank God conscription only lasted in a finite number of years. So the whole personnel system, which by the way, people acknowledge this, but it's another one of like, Hey guys, you know, we should probably figure out how to have different tracks, different interests, and also different tours. One of the things you've seen when you were running acquisition at SOCOM and your other roles is that sometimes the tours are actually too short when you're running an organization is you're just about up to speed putting your fingerprint on it when, okay, my two or three years are up. Wait a minute. You know, you know, Rickover like is probably a good model. I'm sure a lot of people go, no, we'll never do that again. But there was value having somebody who had continuity that actually did take an act of Congress to also get rid of. But 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 it's why we had a, a nuclear power program that didn't whiplash or thrash as the next guy came in. And, and here's the other problem. Um, and this is around innovation. And Pete Newell and I have been beating this drum. You know, we have doctrine in every service 
which basically is our best practices of how do how do we go to war with the training we have, the equipment we have, and the people we have. And, and so whether people read it or not, there's doctrine for, you know, the army for fires and for sustainment and for intelligence and whatever. Here's what we're supposed to do. And the doctrine goes all the way from theory all the way to infinite practice on TDPs and ADPs and whatever. I, I set that up as there's absolutely no doctrine for innovation. That is, you know, everybody who comes in and creates a new innovation program in agency X or Y leaves and the next guy or woman comes in and says, well, that wasn't my idea, and then blows it out. And in fact, the, 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 you know, the rapid equipping force was one example. The Jake is another example. The most visible one was you know, Ash Carter's gravestone, which is called DIU, which was a brilliant observation about how to connect Silicon Valley to, and, and by say Silicon Valley, I mean all the innovation clusters to the DOD. Started in January 2015, abandoned in place by the next sec devs who didn't understand what he was thinking. Guess who adopted it? You know who adopted DIU in the fall of 2015? China. That's the year they set up civil military fusion. They took a look at DIU and have now spent the last seven years actually implementing it. We've spent the last seven years strong arming commercial technology out of the outside of the DOD. You know, the line in Silicon Valley is the way you become a millionaire uh, supplying the DOD is you start by becoming a mi billionaire. Thinkers um, are going to lose a ton of money before someone will buy something from you. Um, so anyway, I, I even forgot what your question was. I think it was about personnel <laughs> and training. Um, but, but, but are you seeing, I guess, Steve, since you get the view of the talent coming in, I, I guess I, I, am, I am perceiving that there is interest in, the com you know, talent coming in to help the country, you know, drive back that integration we had, as you said, episodically. I think Ukraine maybe has accelerated that. They're recognizing you can't you can't just separate national security and prosperity. So I think the big idea we need to capture, we need to figure out how to leverage that and not lose it for another decade. Can I pile on Steve and say, you mentioned the Gordian Knot Center. So I'm curious too, you talked about the role universities play in stimulating this talent. So if, if with Honda's question, you could also talk about your vision for the Gordian Knot Center and anything that surprised you so far. Well, you know, and let me tie a couple of these pieces together. When we started hacking for defense, my goal, and I started with Pete Newell, who used to run the rapid equipping force, and, and Joe Felter, who was the DASD for Southeast Asia, um, is the senior military fellow at, uh, at Stanford. You know, at least my view was I wanted students to get an understanding of what's at stake in national security. That was, you know, like that was it. You know, I wasn't recruiting. I wasn't whatever. And I wanted some of the national security folks who were sponsoring some of these problems to understand what was possible to innovate at speed. That was it. What I didn't understand is what happened. What happened, at least at Stanford, is on average, we have a 60 post-class connect rate of the students who continue to work with their DOD and IC sponsors. In fact, for the last three years, it's 100%. And <laughs> they're still working on the problems, whether as a contractor or, and, and a couple of them have joined the services. And that was the last thing that it would have happened. And that wasn't the, the intent, which just proved to me that once the DOD actually exposes not only the tough problems, but what's at stake and students get to see no, these are just not, you know, people who shoot rifles and whatever. I mean, these are people who are thoughtful, who are trying to solve some serious problems. And, and it's why we have the rest of our democracy. And, and this is why we, 
get to go drink and party at Stanford is that because there are other people who are doing something else. The Gordian Knot Center came from, you know, once we started hacking for defense, Joe and I and Ross Shaw started brainstorming about the impact of commercial technology and whether the DOD actually understood it. And so we stood up a class called Technology, Innovation, and Modern War. And we had a whole bunch of speakers, General Raymond and General Mattis and Ash Carter. And, and then we taught it again, Technology, Innovation, and this time, Great Power Competition. And we realized that no one had started articulating about why this was strategically important. And so, as I said, that's what the center was founded around. It's like, hey, guys, over here, we ought to pay attention to this. It's not like one company trying to do this or GFworks or NavalX being great or Softworks being great on figuring out how to use OTAs and beat the system. It's, it's not that those are wrong, but they were trying to tell us a much bigger story. The much bigger story is everybody is trying to hack a system that no longer works. Every service has some rapid capability office to kind of, you know, go around the existing system or people paint the project black and hack the system that way. I mean, right. Every smart acquisition guy could tell you the way a woman could tell you the way to hack the system without anybody looking all the way up and saying, well, why is the system broken? Oh, there's more stuff that's no longer. There's more people, people, on, the, you more people you on the bypass and on the main highway. Well, that's the big idea. But no one had articulated that of like, as I said, my job is to be master of the obvious. And the obvious, if that's the case, why don't we just step back and admit that the system we have in place is not going to be fixed by putting a a patch on the tire and that's gone flat. Um, so, so, so Steve, speaking of master of the obvious, your background in semiconductors, right? We, we, you know, over the last two to three decades have, you know, seemingly completely lost our organic microelectronics kind of industry. What's your sense of where that sector's going and, and, and what's the right balance of bringing that back? I mean, I can't imagine, uh, you know, a system where we outsource all that completely and create huge vulnerabilities. Do you? How do you see that that kind of market coming back? Um, you know, uh, again, to too many, it was obvious we were losing capability every year, but seemingly doing nothing about it. Um, how do we? How yeah, do we look yeah. at that now? So, you know, what seems simple is actually even more complicated than it seems on the surface. I mean. You know, number one, all the way back to the top is that semiconductors chips are now used in everything. They're used in your iPhone or, or Android phone. But more importantly, every weapon systems we build, including advanced rifles, you know, have some chip in them. Right. So. So if you think about it, silicon is kind of like oil was for the 20th century. The economies and the militaries run on them. Right. So let's just start there. Well, remember the wars we fought over oil in Kuwait and Iraq. Well, because they were important. That's where we're kind of at. And so now you kind of ask, well, where's the oil of the 21st century? Where's it made? Well, it turns out that while the design that is figuring out what should go in the chip can happen anywhere, and there are lots of companies that design chips, they're called fabless semiconductor companies. But think of this as the, as the factory that makes the chips. The most advanced factories, oh, where are they? Are they in Chicago or are they in Silicon Valley? No, they're in Taiwan. They're in where? <laughs> they're in Taiwan. <laughs> There's a company called TSMC, that Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, 
that started out as kind of a small little company and now makes the most advanced chip. Well, here, where's the second largest factory that makes chips for other people? Is that in Silicon Valley or New York or Chicago? Oh, no, that's in South Korea. That's Samsung. <laughs> okay. Huh. How does that work? <laughs> well, who else is making the chips in factories? Well, China has decided this is important. And so there are more fabs being built. These factories are called fabs or fabrication facility. They're being built in China. And their biggest one is called SMIC. And they make chips not only for their consumer devices, but for companies like Huawei and also for their ICBMs and their aircraft and their whatever. Oops. Well, wait a minute. Where do these guys buy the equipment that goes in these factories? Oh, that's kind of good news. There are three American companies. And one uh, Japanese company and one company from the Netherlands, uh, five companies that make the machines, um, Applied Materials, KLA, LAM, uh, ASML that makes the, uh, the optical things that, that puts the pattern on the chips, and uh, Tokyo Electron in, in Japan. Um, so now we kind of got this kind of global mess of we're all interconnected, which, by the way, when globalization was a great idea and we were had interest in China, if they just became commercial, they would be democratic and our friends. This was a great idea. Right? And now all of a sudden we're essentially decoupling. China understands that they need to have their own national security industrial base. And we realize we're worse off than China because China has reminded us that Taiwan isn't a country, <laughs> that it's a province. Uh, but in fact, the most valuable asset Taiwan has now is not its people, but its semiconductor fabs. Because if China takes those fabs, the Western world will be set back five to ten years. Even if they... Even if they don't seize them, even if they simply destroy them, they have fabs and we have few. We have Intel, which makes chips for itself. And we have Micron, which makes memory. But there are very few fabs in the United States uh, uh, that can match what TSMC has. Did I make a complicated thing more complicated or? I was no, to no. I question. mean, it just it's just one of those, you know, framing assumptions like chips will always be there. Don't worry about it that, you know, if you don't pay attention to it will will erode from you. So, Steve, you know, you and I have known each other for a long time. When I, and I'm going to go back to one of your earlier comments um, about curiosity and. You know, you're one of the, you are by far one of the smartest guys I know, and you're by far one of the most curious people I know who doesn't come believing they know all the answers when they come to the conversation. Can you just kind of share from your experience, life experiences for, you know, those coming up through the ranks? You know, how did, how did you kind of, was there something that tripped you? Was it a mentor you had? Or, I mean, some of it's just, I think, how we're brought up, but. How has that served you well through your, you know, incredible career? Again, for a guy who started eight companies and done about everything you can think of doing, you get in a room with four operators and you're you're back to being, you know, low man on the totem pole and just tell me rolling up your sleeves. How, you know, what how would what advice would you give to folks along those lines, especially those coming up through the ranks, but even some old dogs like us? So, you know, one of the things is I, I taught my kids, um, and I'll talk about me for a second, but I taught my kids is when you don't know something, even though you're afraid of being stupid, raise your hand and ask all the time. I mean, just interact. And I'll, I'll still do this now. I'll hear a word I don't understand. <laughs> well, what does that mean? 
And by the way, when a civilian walks into the DOD, that's every other sentence. It's like, what is the PPE? What is that? You know, well, that's a five-day conversation. I mean, just start asking. And by the way, same with the DOD folks going out to civilian world now, which is, well, wait a minute. You know, how do VCs make money? How does that work? You know, what? Um, How do you guys actually ship things so fast? So number two, though, is to ask questions implicitly you have to be curious and if you don't have curiosity it's okay but get the hell out of my way you're on the execution (laughs) staff and it doesn't mean you're wrong or bad but but the people who are innovators are the people who are always curious about not only how things work but why do they work that way And, and the conversations we've been talking about about the dod and the processes we have people believe that the pbe was written you know on on the tablet somewhere that moses brought down or at least, you know, the pharaohs drew in the pyramids for the org chart. It, it maybe goes back almost to, that far to McNamara and, you know, and 1961 and two. But but just assuming that because we have a process, it's the process. I know this is why, why you succeeded is no, no innovators go. Human beings made these rules. Yeah, you know, we could go to jail. Then let's go change the rule. Let's go to Congress or let's explain why we need different rules for different circumstances. I remember my, in my short career in the military, I was always asking questions and people were saying, that's not for your pay grade or that's classified. Or <laughs> probably, that's probably why you had a short career in the military. <laughs> but, but actually, that's why I ended up doing, I, I have to tell you, you'll appreciate this and so will your audience. You know, the rule in the military is you never volunteer for anything. I volunteered for everything. And yeah, half the time I was doing latrine duty or, or peeling potatoes. But man, I got a couple of assignments where people went, you did, you were flying on what? You're not even on an aircraft. How'd you get over there? Because I, I raised my hand. And my whole career, I learned that 80% was showing up when other people were just going home and volunteering and being curious and sticking my nose in places that people go, well, that's not your job. Well, I don't care. God didn't write that job spec. You know, like, so, so number one, I guess I would say to folks coming up, you know, if you're not curious, ask yourself why. Is, is it because you've been beaten down or, you know, or you're just simply not curious? And if you're not, then, then this will be an uncomfortable spot for you. The second thing is, and again, this was kind of learned and you can learn how to do this, but this is differentiates folks who survive in combat. And the equivalent thing is if you can operate in chaos and uncertainty, then you're going to be comfortable with innovation and entrepreneurship and figuring out how to redesign a system. If you're comfortable in process and repeatable stuff, then you're going to end up driving process. And there are a few people who are just comfortable with uncertainty. But you could train yourself for operating in uncertainty because what you try to do when you're in that world is to look for patterns that do exist. And that is a skill that could be trained is look for the patterns and the signals and the noise. It's like being an analyst. What are you looking for? But you're doing that constantly. And when combined with curiosity and when combined with a fact that human beings made some rules, are there some other rules that might be more optimum? Then, in fact, you can move the world forward or your organization forward. And you're going to be running into uncomfortable situations because 99% of the world are people who are comfortable with status quo and execution. Um, That's why most people come to work and want to do their job. But the world moves forward and the DOD and militaries win when the unconventional thinkers actually start at the edge and move in. And, you know, the, the one we used to quote all the time was bull. 
avoid, right? The OODA loop and, and the rest. And, and AI is going to give us new OODA loops and, and whatever. But but those were unconventional thoughts that eventually became mainstream. And and if you look at how history happens, that's, that's what happened. So yeah, that's my I, long answer to short question. Yeah, I think, you know, as we wrap up today's session, you know, I go back to the, the three traits of folks that really move the needle and that's curiosity, humility, and then boldness to act. And, uh, and certainly Steve, you've done all three and you continue to do all three, uh, on behalf of the country. So thanks for your time with us today. Thanks for all you're doing. And, uh, thanks for continuing to make us all uncomfortable at the pace we're moving, but trying to be a uh, part of the solution, not just admiring the problem. And uh, for that, we're all grateful. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Steve. Some great ideas here. And I think we should look into hosting a brainstorming session, maybe get you out or go out to you and get some of the folks together to to walk through this. So thank you so much. And I think you really painted a clear picture of the national security threat landscape that is really stimulating this sense of urgency, but also had some productive ideas about how we can strengthen collaboration. And most importantly, it's just sharing this with future talent. And um, I think the work you're doing at Stanford is really important. So thanks so much, Steve. You've been listening to Building the Base, a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.